What's good, everyone? My name is Jacob Moses, and welcome to the Peep the Ten podcast, a monthly podcast where in each episode, Janine and I chat with a ten fish advocate to ramp up our ten fish knowledge, hear stories from across the ten fish supply chain, and most important, boost our never-ending love for the humble ten fish. In this episode, we chat with Zach Cohn, an early career fellow at Stanford University, working primarily on the Blue Food Assessment, a coalition of international researchers working to put, and I quote, blue food, which the coalition describes as food from marine and freshwater systems in the center of the global food policy agenda. With a PhD focused on how sustainably harvested seafood can improve public health, paired with an environmental justice tilt, Zach advocates for a timely message in the commercial seafood game, as individuals and governments alike consider how food systems contribute to the resiliency of our communities. In this episode, Zach gives listeners an inside look into the sustainable fishing industry and much more, including what sustainable fishing looks like from sea to plate, the difference between low bycatch fisheries and traditional commercial fisheries, and why you should still eat fish despite your friend's obsession with the Sea Spiracy documentary. Enjoy. My name is Janine Rocked. Joining me is Joseph Moses, creator of the Peepton Podcast, a monthly podcast focusing on tinned fish advocates, general fish knowledge, and sustainability along the supply chain. Most importantly, boosting our knowledge for the humble tinned fish. In this episode, we chat with Zach Cohen, who, among many other things, has worked for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration for the U.S., wrote his Ph.D. thesis on eating low on the food chain and sustainable ocean protein. Hope you enjoy the episode. Let's dive in. Zach, tell us about your studies at Stanford. Yeah, so I'm an early career fellow at Stanford, which basically means I finished my PhD studies and now I'm doing what's called a postdoc. And at Stanford, I'm working for the Center for Ocean Solutions on this project called the Blue Food Assessment, which basically is kind of like my PhD 2.0. It's assessing the role of seafood in the healthy food system with respect to its environmental impacts, the impacts that climate change will likely have on it, and its contributions to welfare and to nutrition. And the really cool thing about this project is that the science that I'm doing right now is going to contribute to this uh, very large convention by the UN called the UN Food Systems Summit. And that thing is kind of the guiding force to help meet the objectives of the sustainable development goals that countries who are in the UN are trying to meet by 2030. So it's a really cool kind of science to action space to be in. I'm pretty very fortunate to be there. Zach, when did the Blue Food Assessment start? Is this a fairly new organization or have y'all been at it for a bit? Yeah, yeah. So it's a collaboration between Stanford, um, the Stockholm Resilience Center in Sweden, and then the EAT Forum, which is also kind of Europe-based. 
I believe based in Sweden. I could be wrong there. Okay. Um, so an international yeah, organization. Of, yeah. So it's a uh, calls, you know, early in the morning in Europe and late at night in Asia. So it's sure. It's, it's pretty fun, but it's definitely different. <laughs> so you're all focusing on the the advocacy side or trying to influence policy, get like grassroots coalitions, like what's the, the yeah, ultimate goal so of of this crew? The main goal um my main focus is to kind of be the data engine for a set of research papers that mm. explore different aspects of blue foods, which also includes um, marine, inland, uh, aquaculture, fisheries, um, fish, shellfish, and aquatic plants. So to better understand basically the nutritional benefits of blue foods, and then also to identify um, where there are concerns of equity as to the mm. distribution and how we can kind of get over those hurdles. So as a quick example, are low-income consumers or rural residents disadvantaged when they want to eat fish are, or shellfish? Are fish even available? And importantly, are they even affordable? So it's kind mm-hmm. of those sorts of questions. And then those papers will hopefully all get accepted through the scientific process and journals, where then they will be taken up um, by policymakers at this UN Food Systems Summit. So it's more of a science to policy more so than it is advocacy. I'm also mm. firmly of the of the um, science based belief that you know fish and shellfish are going to be a part of healthy food systems in the future. Sure. Yeah. And probably more so than they are now. Awesome. So I just coming from a background like I don't have any background in marine biology. I know what I like to eat. I try and be responsible and I now have a company where we have told people that we're going to be responsible, but can you walk us through in maybe the simplest form possible? And it might possibly not be simple, but what does it look like in terms of sustainable fish practices? Can you walk us through an example or a few examples of what does it look like from like fish to hook to plate? Mm -hmm. What is bad and what is good in like the, just kind of like the, most digestible like shortest form yeah yeah i can definitely i can make a take a stab at it so um, there's been a lot of bad recently regarding fisheries so i'm going to start with the good and basically so fisheries from a sustainability perspective when you think about sustainability you have to realize that fisheries are more than just the fish itself it's also the people who catch it and the community that may depend on Mm -hmm. it Sure. Um, so from a biological perspective, so this is more the fish side rather than the, and the hook side rather than the plate side. Um, biological fishing is possible when the seasonal harvest of that given fish is caught or, or limited in such a way that it ensures that that stock of fish is able to continue to reproduce into the future. So it's really not too different from managing a forest to ensure that each tree taken out, there's at least one new tree planted. Hmm. Um, The difference is that we're working in a broader ecosystem. And when you catch one fish, you might also be catching a fish that you don't want. So at least in the U.S., we're starting to manage the fishery ecologically as well. And basically what we're doing is trying to limit bycatch. So the catch of species that are not the target of the fishery, 
just to make sure that we don't overfish or have a negative impact on the broader ecosystem as well. And that's mm -hmm. kind of, I guess you can call it sort of the cutting edge of fisheries science is where we're at now, which is pretty cool. It's definitely very cool to learn from NOAA and from my colleagues at University of Washington about how that's actually possible. And these laws are actually a big deal. Um, you know, they kind of talked about bycatch as being this overriding issue. Um, it seems to be talked about a lot from um, more like vegan activists, but in reality, the bycatch laws have teeth and fisheries can be shut down. Hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the biological side. And in the U.S., we actually um, also manage for economics, which you'd think goes totally against the idea of biological sustainability. But the trick is that um, if you have, if you're managing a fish for the economic sustainability, you want to maximize the profit. Sure. And that means you want to have more fish in the ocean to pull from. And actually, the level that we call the maximum economic yield of a fishery is lower than the biological sustainable limit or the maximum sustainable yield, just because of that supply and demand and the fact that if there's more fish in the ocean, it's going to require less gas to get out to them to catch them. Sure. So it's more efficient as a process. And when I first heard about that, it kind of, it did very much blow my mind. And I spent a lot of time with like some math trying to figure it out. But it is, it kind of does make sense when you think about it from the perspective of it's going to take a lot more effort to catch that last fish than if you make sure that there's enough fish that you don't need to worry about that last fish and that there's a big, healthy, robust population. So that's basically what we manage for in the U.S. That's great. Uh, a I'm, phrase learning, I'm that... learning a lot, definitely. <laughs> A phrase that comes to mind, Zach, I come from like the housing urbanist game and cool. there's a shorthand term among like Twitter urbanists saying like housing for whom <laughs> whenever right. it's talking about, you'll see a lot of new housing and maybe a popular metro area, but see mostly more luxury housing. So mm -hmm. referencing back to your um, equality point, we don't necessarily see that housing trickling down to people who need more affordable rents. Um, in, in this instance, what do you think is like the fish for whom conversation in yeah. terms of ensuring that these populations from your research are historically have less accessibility um, to the, the product of commercial fishing? What, what's that conversation like? Yeah, so that's a really interesting point. And the one of the main challenges I think that we're coming up against now is that we've been able to manage fish biologically and we've been able to manage fish to, you know, maximize profit. But in doing so, we have excluded a lot of fish from local people because it's basically more vertically integrated, larger firms that are able mm -hmm. to kind of either buy their way into the fishery or kind of um, collect as many permits as they can within the harvestable limit, of course. But it's mm -hmm. actually reduced the number of boats actually on the water. And therefore, it's potentially reduced the amount of accessibility that people who live close to the fishing harbors have to that fish. Because if it's a big business, it's going to go to a big processing plant. It potentially is going to get exported where revenues could be the highest. Um, and it doesn't necessarily leave a lot for the consumer. But that's kind of a two-way street because right now the local demand for seafood that's domestic isn't as high as it used to be. Part of the reason is that we previously had overfished a lot of our fisheries 
But now that they've rebuilt, that demand has gone elsewhere. It's gone into, you know, Big Macs or it's gone into imported tilapia and things like that, okay. um, which are cheap. And basically, one of the things that was a part of my research that I kind of had to had to realize is that we're actually under fishing, at least on the West Coast, a lot of our fisheries. And we could sustainably harvest more than we do to the tune of about 10,000 or I think 20,000 servings of fish hmm. at about 250 a pound whole, wholesale, which is about the price of chicken. So wow. it's that level of pricing that could get more local fish into schools, um, potentially into food banks, because they actually have a budget that they purchase food with, um, wow. into jails, hospitals, et cetera, to try and start to kind of meet more nutritionally vulnerable or low-income consumers where they could use it the most. So that's that was kind of an interesting thing that I had to realize. And the other was just how much of a nutrition powerhouse a lot of fish and shellfish, particularly tin fish, like mussels and sardines, actually are. I mean, they're, it's not only about omega-3s. They're you know, at least as nutrient-rich as, as some plants and they tend to have those nutrients in a more bioavailable form, which means they're more digestible. So that was kind of a thing where I was like, okay, like, you know, it's, it's not always going to be the answer to, to eat fish, but it's definitely going to be a part of the answer if we're thinking about healthy food systems. Janine, do you have a lot of folk inquire about the uh, nutritional benefits of tin fish whenever you're out talking to prospective folk? Yeah, you know, you know, it's really interesting with, um, I hate to call them fads, but it's really the only category it falls into. So like keto diets mm. and people that are going like paleo. And it's been a really interesting response for people that say, oh, this is like as paleo as keto as you can get. And as much as I'm excited, like, this is great. I also want to explain to them how sustainable the things that we carry are and how it's, it's a great resource, but it's not just about like the diet and the caloric content. It's about being sustainable and everything else, which when you're on a diet, I don't think anyone really fucking cares about <laughs> where they're getting things. As I've learned, it's, it's not about your, your Starbucks full fat. Um, what is it when it's the full fat keto, whatever it is, I forgot what it's called, but it's like full, full cream. Huh. in your coffee i'm blanking on it which is dino latte i don't know i, li I live I in Portland my own and i should know i should know all the coffee terms but i can't remember it <laughs> but um yeah on top of that i just think that there are a lot of opinions i mean i live in portland so people aren't exactly like oh that sounds disgusting but there's definitely a little bit of pushback when it comes to tinned fish comparatively with let's say frozen fish. I think we were talking on the last podcast with Liz at Sardine Head about sustainability, what you're getting in your restaurant. And like for me in Portland, I like my favorite, I shouldn't even say favorite, like my only fishmonger is uh, Leaf and the folks at Flying Fish. I go to them regardless if they've caught it, their friends have caught it. I know whatever is fresh, frozen or tinned, it's safe it's sustainable and they believe in it and I can go there and feel like I'm contributing to society while still nourishing myself. 
And I know not everyone gets to have that, but I think the whole point of not just like the podcast or actually specifically us talking to you, Zach, is walking people through, like you don't have to be super technical and know everything about a subject, but knowing how to feed yourself is very important and it's becoming more and more important as our economy and our climate changes and everything else. And no one needs to have a, well, I shouldn't say no one, you clearly are getting a doctorate in it, but we, we need to look to people like you that know about it, that can teach and tell people on a very, very basic, understandable level, how do we feed ourselves and how do we do it in a way that doesn't destroy everything around us? Yeah, that's, and that's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting question to think about because, you know, there's, you can't just think about seafood as, as a big monolithic thing, right? Like there are much more nutritious species and less nutritious species. There are certain kinds of production methods in aquaculture that are incredibly high environmental impact and GH or greenhouse gas emitting. And then there are others that are incredibly low, like bivalve mariculture. So mussels, oysters, etc. So those are like nutrient powerhouses that are also good for the climate. And there's never going to be a perfect win-win. Like we need to scale this thing up all the way because it's the future. It's always going to be in a given context, this might work here. And in another context, it might work there. And people need to kind of just kind of, I think, broaden their minds maybe a little bit as to the diversity of healthy foods out there. And I think that might be a good, you know, a good starting point for sure. Yeah. Is this where we start talking about eating cicadas? <laughs> <laughs> just Not going to lie. I'm kind of jealous. I kind of, I want to see it. They taste like grasshoppers roasted. It's like almonds. They're not bad. Yeah. I'll let my friends know in DC. They're, uh, they're emerging right now as we speak. I cannot oh wait to see what chefs are going to do. I, I, cannot, I hope they get fucking crazy. I'm excited. Sorry. Oh, they will. They will. Segway, but been, whatever. Yeah. They've been thinking for 17 years about this, you know? 17 years <laughs> since they were fucking four years old. No, just kidding. Waiting yeah. for this moment. <laughs> um, Zach, I'm curious. Does the blue, blue food assessment have any relation to... Um, the Blue Zones organization. Are you familiar with those folk? No, I'm not. So I think they started in Fort Worth, Texas, near me. Um, but they're also like a, a policy advocacy organization, but focusing on um, the health of its residents and then tying those outcomes to cost savings for the municipalities. So I, I only say that because as you were describing this holistic approach to your research with um, seafood, I can see that eventually being tied into the prosperity of our communities as well. You know, you talked about the health benefits of um, ingesting seafood. These Blue Zones folk have ended up finding that, you know, after, you know, pursuing walkable neighborhoods, um, having more primary care clinics in neighborhoods, seeing um, some healthcare costs go down for the state. So I'm curious if you guys have seen some of those outcomes as well with y'all's research of actually, you know, improving the prosperity of these communities. I think at this point, I mean, so I actually, I, I just looked it up and I have heard of the blue zones because 
in a lot of those diets, fish are a part of them. Yeah. And I remember yeah. hearing about that, I think, and, and I just quickly looked it up, like in Okinawa, um, Sardinia, um, I think, and also Greece, fish are a part, like a pretty staple part of the, of the diets that make up a part of the overall, you know, well-being of these blue zones. Um, but as, as far as measurable impact from an epidemiological perspective, so that's like kind of the study of disease. So mm. in this case, it might be um, obesity um, or type 2 diabetes. It hasn't yet been perfectly 100% proven that eating fish oil, for example, is going to contribute um, is going to reduce your um, obesity or something like that because sure. it's you know the, the human it. body. I know <laughs> it's not that you got to go for a walk, you got to go surfing. Activity is a big part of it too. So um, that that's kind of a, but it's definitely as far as a contributor to the healthy diet. We do know that um, the consumption of particularly oily fish and omega threes are definitely good. Um, for heart health and are critical for brain development. Um, so that definitely we can say. But as far as kind of like an overall contribution of sardines, for example, to well-being, it's a little bit harder because it's obviously a part sure. of a much broader whole. Yeah. But I'm all about um, the Japanese diet. That's definitely one that I try and live by. And it kind of aligns with the Mediterranean diet, I think, in terms of yeah, about a... not very like not in terms of specific, but in terms of protein versus gluten versus legumes versus veg and yeah. salt content and certainly, and that's something I think that uh, people who are you know battling for plants or battling for fish um, need to kind of remember is that it's a part of a broader diet. And mm. you just want to make sure that the diet as a whole is healthy and you probably should be eating more plants than you do fish, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, that's just going to be more affordable and it's going to be more nutrient rich yeah. and kind of the cutting edge. And actually the person who just won the, um, uh, food prize, um, is a woman named Shakuntala Tilstead that I work with in Malaysia. Woo woo. She's awesome. And she, uh, has been really encouraging fish not only for fish sake but for its contribution to the diet and how mm. now we start need to start thinking about the consumption of healthy fish in addition to citrus which helps make the iron more available in the fish or in addition to um, leafy greens for vitamin a etc so thinking about fish as a part of the whole diet and how you're never going to eat the same amount of fish as you do a plant even though in the sure. studies it's all kind of standardized that way so it's right. really, I mean, she's, she's been a pioneer and a groundbreaker for a long time. It's cool that she got this award. It's um, super, super rad. I, yeah. Like bioavailable bio ingredients and processing is very different from people just having a diet or having food. I think people don't really connect all the time unless cool. they're like you and know, know all the technical aspects of it. They don't understand when you eat this protein, this fat, this whatever, you digest it differently. Mm -hmm. Or when you have mint with a naturopathic, like it, it cancels it out. Like there, there are a lot of things that people don't think. But I kind of want to segue what you were just talking, even though I kind of went on a little little side uh, part. I wanted to kind of bring in Seaspiracy a little bit because I, mm -hmm. um, 
my good friend, Abby McCarthy, who linked me up with you and speaks so highly of you. I'm so glad that you were able to be on the program. Abby's um, awesome. She's she's rad. Her dad is actually my best boss of my entire life. He's like the craft <laughs> distilling king of the entire yeah. world. But um, she's also awesome in her own regard and linked me up with you. And I was like, I don't know a lot about this, but I watched Seaspiracy. What the fuck do you think about this? So we were kind of going back and forth for quite a while. But what I want to ask specifically is what do you think they got right about the commercial fishing industry? And then really the conclusion, I have lots of <laughs> I have lots of opinions on this, but I would like your opinion and I probably maybe not I won't put my full opinion out there. But what what do you feel about the conclusion basically of the documentary, which is don't eat anything from the ocean? So the first part is what do you think they got right? First part is should people not eat anything from the ocean? Yeah. Yeah. So starting with what they got right, I mean, anyone who's shining a light on labor abuses in mm. seafood value chains is is at least they're doing really good work. Um, sure. It is definitely a problem. They focus specifically on harvest um, and kind of the labor abuses at sea, which are really tragic. And um, I'd highly recommend people uh, take a look at Ian Urbina's work on outlaw ocean he has like he's a pretty creative dude he did a whole bunch of investigative journalism he also um, worked with a bunch of composers to create a playlist around the notion of uh, labor abuses at sea wow. pretty wild wild guy um, but then also labor violations occur in processing and i don't believe seaspiracy got to that level um, the Associated Press did some work and actually won a Pulitzer on um, kind of mainstreaming awareness of labor abuses that occur in shrimp peeling sheds. Um, it's a huge, huge, huge problem. And basically the bottom line is if you must eat shrimp, you need to peel them yourself. <laughs> you mm. don't want to have someone else peel them because that is low wage to no wage work right now. Sure. And you need to just learn how to empathize with laborers who prepare your seafood. So in that respect, I think they did really well. Um, they're also right to be concerned with unsustainable fishing practices, particularly in international waters and in areas where a given country might not be able to have the governance needed to manage the fisheries on their own. Hmm. Um, so their work in West Africa wasn't completely wrong foreign fleets are definitely doing some pretty major damage to domestic fisheries. And that is definitely in turn creating a food security issue. But the thing is the solution for a food security crisis, like the one that they raised, isn't to stop fishing. It's to push unsustainable fishing practices out and ensure that the folks who are most dependent on the fisheries still have access to them so that they can lead a healthy lifestyle. Hmm. And I think that they kind of got off track there and, then tried to come together with the fin whale thing at the end, but that basically was just left in a pool of blood. So even there, they didn't really sure. get the point across, I think, as they could have. Um, but I think on those two respects, they were right. I mean, unsustainable fishing definitely still exists, but I just looked at the um, most recent um, food and agriculture organization that kind of does all the bookkeeping on sustainable fishing. It has its issues with reporting, but basically what they found is that 70% of fisheries 
are actually at levels that are sustainable and only 30% aren't, which is a pretty far cry from the all fisheries gone by 2048 that um, has been uh, shown to be entirely false many times. Have you read The Secret Life of Groceries? It's no. reminding me, so Benjamin Lore, it's a, it's, he calls it a deep dive. I think it's kind of like a periphery dive, but he, one of the things that really comes up, and I've had a few people, you know, texting me like, have you heard about this? But they focus on the Thai shrimping boats. Oh, gosh. It's devastating. But I mean, it's also focused on seaspiracy, but um, I, I think those stats are wonderfully positive and I think kind of paves the way for this being, I mean, uh, talking about, I'm, I'm also, I'm a meat eater, right? I'm, a, I'm an omnivore and I eat fish and, and whatever I can sustainably. But when it comes to like beef, like you look at beef practices and you look mm-hmm. at what were the stats? Can you tell us the stats one more time? Was it yeah, 70%? For FAO. Yeah. So the FAO kind of does the bookkeeping on a lot of sustainable fisheries around the world and they have issues with data reporting, but basically about 70% of um, the fish stocks in the world are sustainably harvested. Hmm. So only 30% are being harvested at a level beyond sustainable. Yeah. And, and yeah. we know that's not the same with pork and beef. And so it's like, it's yeah, it's pretty, that's pretty incredible. And real yeah, data. It's, I mean, real, as far real as data, real data. <laughs> yeah. That's like real data <laughs> peer reviewed and scientists agree with. Oh, I'm going to totally steal that. Peer-reviewed. I love that saying so much. (laughs) I'm not a doctoral candidate, but I'm just going to tell you. You probably love it more than the scientists do, to be honest. Oh, I guarantee it. (laughs) (laughs) Guarantee it, yeah. Zach, do we see a connection between these peer-reviewed papers and the conversations happening in the legislature? Like what you just stated is very compelling. You know, oftentimes a lot of the issues that we see, we don't necessarily have compelling numbers and know where to target our interventions. But what you've said here, only about 30% have been deemed unsustainable. Are we starting to have that conversation at the federal level to start brainstorming some interventions? Um, so with with respect to the fish, so, so at the federal level for the U.S., scientists are absolutely at the table when right. they discuss the harvest limits. So typically the, the 30% of stocks, fish stocks that are overfished are in places where you don't have that kind of governance mm. to actually be able to manage the fishery well. Fisheries management costs a lot of money. You have to have people going out on surveys and figuring out independent of fishing how many fish there might be so that you can basically set the level of harvest to ensure mm. that they'll come back year after year. So some of Abby's work is focused on that as an example. Yeah. Is that a cost um, that the fishery incurs? It is a cost that uh, the federal government pays for. And I think okay. the okay. fishing businesses, depending on the fishery, pay into through their Got permits. It. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a really great system, but it definitely costs a lot of money. And that's a part of the problem um, is that if people don't, you know, value their fisheries in the same way that the United States does, um, or they just don't flat out have the kind of economic firepower that the United States does, then it can be really hard to do that. Um, and that's where you kind of run into issues. Um, and But international policy is trying to find ways to do this, but 
it's really hard for the UN to kind of impose regulations on another country. In fact, it's impossible for them to do that. Mm. You can only, you know, voluntarily accept those guidelines. So that's sure. kind of the way that they're approaching it and then encouraging them to, you know, kind of come into the fold. I don't think people put sanctions on and probably shouldn't put sanctions on countries in the same way that you would for like nuclear production or something like that. Sure. I follow. The the prospect of governance yeah. is interesting, especially relating to what you mentioned earlier, what was going down in West Africa. I, I don't recall if it was the Somalian fishing um, fishing That's people right. yeah. that were out at sea. And then I, what was it China? Was there a China fleet that yeah. was um, doing a lot of the fishing over there? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it reminded me of a, an article that I'd read recently where there was a biologist in the 1960s who essentially said, like, if we give communities like complete local control, that it'll be chaos, there won't be any sense <laughs> of collaboration, and that they'll completely um, deplete all of their resources. But then I contrast to these poor Somalian fishermen who are just trying to get some fish to feed their folk. Mm-hmm. And then we have this, this foreign fleet. I, I wonder if we were to see more local control more autonomy for these communities that rely on commercial fishing. Do we think we would still see a lot of this chaos or would we actually have, you know, better outcomes on the community level? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, unbridled global market demand certainly has the potential to completely strip away local marine resources, but really that's just not how the world works in most cases. In some cases, you know, Foreign fleets might be paying off local governments. Um, but oh, that's, wow. Yeah, that's... that's For real? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm not going to say sucks, where, man. but it definitely sure. happens. And I'll just say that does overlap with the uh, um, where they focus in, in West Africa. Okay. Yeah, so wow. there's a lot of basically oh, wow. development in the Silk yeah. Road um, that's the, the modern Silk Road, I think it's called, where basically there's a lot of um, investment in infrastructure, for example. So payoffs to government, and okay. then they get access to the local resources. So that we definitely know is happening in, in some countries where it's most needed, you know, and, and maybe don't have the, definitely don't have the GDP to do it on their own. Sure. So yeah, that definitely is a problem. Um, but what we've seen like, in most places around the world, I mean, humans have lived in and have had a footprint on their ecosystems literally since before, I mean, time immemorial. Yeah. And by and large, we've always had sustainable ecosystems up until very, very recently when the global market kind of came in and created so much more demand that the supply kind of had to strip away everything. So that is definitely a problem. But where we're able to exclude kind of foreign isn't necessarily the right word. It's kind of you know nationalistic, but where we're able to just make sure that the people um, in the environment have their needs met. In those cases, we have for thousands of years managed fisheries well in British Columbia, mm-hmm. in Hawaii, um, in uh, Baja, Mexico, there are a number of different examples, but it does require limiting people's access in some way. 
And sure. that's, that's kind of the trick. And that's where it requires kind of a tight, close knit community to make that happen. But it's 100% possible. And there's probably going to be in some cases, some kind of, you know, fishy gold rush for certain resources. But typically, people are going to wisen up to the idea that there aren't any, you know, urchins left or whatever that might be. Yeah. Um, not that that's ever the case because urchin populations are exploding, but whatever that resource is, people are going to wisen up because they want that resource to be around and they're going to work together to collectively manage it. So I think, hmm. yeah, I think that whole idea of, um, you know, people left to their own devices aren't going to be able to save anything is just not true because communities no. matter and humans are social and it just doesn't totally. make any sense to me. Totally. I think maybe the the biggest change we've seen, you know, maybe post-World War II is we kind of lost the idea, at least in the United States, of scarcity. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we had the, the world's currency. We could build whatever we wanted to build. Did, did, did it matter if it worked out? No, not really. We could just build some more. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of feel like when you get back to that place with seafood harvesting as well where we understand that this isn't you know infinite and that we need to have some skin in the game and have a little bit of a tighter feedback loop about every part of it as you've explained whether it's you know the the cheap labor of peeling the the shrimp or you know the way in which it gets to consumers it's very interesting conversation yeah yeah and that's kind of the the food sovereignty movement so the yeah. idea of kind of tightening the feedback loop. And, you know, I think that's true and it works really well in a lot of cases, but other cases, you know, if you rely too much on local food and then you have a crop of cicadas take mm. down everything and it's a bad year for the fisheries, people are going to starve to death. And so oh, I think, sure. you know, there is still, I don't think, you know, we should do away with global trade, but I think global trade needs to better recognize the impacts it has in a different region. Mm. So you're speaking to resiliency. Right. It's something we need to have more resilient local food systems where we got a, a bit more complexity. So if mm-hmm. some cicadas don't come out, it doesn't wipe out our entire food source. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'm not like trying to be like a harbinger of destruction in, in DC, but you know, imagine if that wasn't in DC and this was in an area where they're totally based on grains and they just, get their entire crop for the next four years decimated by this mm-hmm. cicada, which is actually what happens in East Africa. Wow. So, and yeah. might happen this year. With... Yep. <laughs> I, I mean, I also think there's a balance with education, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there are a lot of people and we, or we harped on this a little bit in the last podcast, but people are not okay with seeing the animal in whole form mm-hmm. still in the U S and as much as we have people that, you know, catch fish and hunt and whatever, <clears throat> I've, I, I still have friends that have hunted and for years and years and years never did anything with the deer heart and finally sure. brought me the deer heart. And I was like, you can do something like deer, deer heart pot pie, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's always something that you can do with the excess and not saying that they were being wasteful because they used every other part. But there's a, um, I think there's a huge education factor that that is so important when it comes to like my my old world was selling weird expensive booze that no one bought and didn't like was the joke but it was made from actual real fruit 
And now I'm in a world where I sell really delicious olive oil, vinegar, and tinned fish. And there's a real story. And there's still like that cringe factor. And I think we just have to get packed. We have to get that. Yeah. We have to get past that. Like, if you're okay with eating a fucking McDonald's Big Mac, you should not cringe at opening a tin of sardines. Totally. Because in terms of, I mean, like we're all speaking the same language. Like the sustainability, whatever else, omega threes, the actual fact that you're getting food in your system. But, um. I, I kind of want to segue into some fun stuff, though, Zach. <laughs> yeah, did you Outside want me to answer the, the the question about seaspiracy or the, the second part of the question, or do you want to just... Oh, yeah, sorry. Okay. I'm sorry, Zach, yes. No, that's okay. You're so organized. <laughs> yes. Um, I just have the yeah, questions the, in the front of the conclusion, so. she do not eat anything from the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that, I mean, if you're a vegan and you're in it for animal rights abuses, by all means you know, don't eat fish. But if the angle's about sustainability, then you should probably just ignore the message of the film, the main message of the mm. film. So I've never, I've only been in this um, fisheries space for a decade since I turned 19. Um, but I have literally in no other issue seen environmentalists, fishery scientists, conservation scientists, ecologists, and businesses come together so uniformly against the messages of this film and how it was presented. Mm -hmm. And I think that was just a really powerful, definitely the most powerful thing about Seaspiracy. I mean, yeah. major scientists who literally can't agree on anything were endorsing each other's messages. Wow. So I think it's really, um, from an, if you're not talking about animal rights and in that perspective, whatever, it's fine. Like you do you. Um, but not everyone can afford to not eat animals. And sure. if you are going to eat animals um, and you care about the climate, there is nothing that is more sustainable from an eating animals perspective than small fish like tin fish, sardines, herring, anchovy, et cetera, and mussels. Um, and most of them are actually more comparable from a climate perspective with plants than they are to animals. So from a climate perspective, if you're not against eating animals, generally speaking, definitely eat fish. And mm. then from a nutrition perspective, as we talked about, it's kind of a no-brainer. Sure. Um, and more of the whole fish that you eat, the better, right? Because not only are you wasting less, but you're also taking in more nutrients. So like when you can... Bones in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. calcium, oh, mega oh, high. Yeah. You know, and liver is super high, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's in... Um, iron and zinc, maybe not zinc, but definitely iron. Definitely yeah. iron, definitely zinc, definitely. There are a lot, like I was that weird kid that my we had cod liver oil in yeah. spoonfuls growing up with Trader Joe's cherry juice mixed. In. <laughs> 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 I was that kid at school. So anyway, so yeah, I think you know it's definitely eat sardines and mussels if you can, and eat you know well harvested fish if if you can, and then leave the rest of the fish for people that may need it the most. So some of the mm. research that's going to come out of the blue food assessment um, is likely going to show or will show, because we've shown it, <laughs> we've proven it, um, that increasing supply of sustainably harvested seafood will pull millions of people out of micronutrient deficiencies around the world. Wow. So if people aren't eating fish or shellfish, what should 
particularly nutritionally vulnerable eat, vulnerable people eat to improve their diet? You know, what's the impact of the Big Mac? What's the impact of, I mean, God, think about the animal rights abuses of eating more poultry. It's a problem. Yeah. So, you know, eating fish isn't always... With the fried chicken wars. (laughs) Right. Yeah, and I'm, I'm definitely guilty of that. I don't eat much beef anymore, but I've substituted that for chicken because you can't always, you know, I don't always have time to like fillet a local king salmon or something like that. Wait, what? <laughs> Which I am, you don't I have am time doing. To do that? <laughs> I am doing tonight. You don't have a lot of free but... <laughs> time with all this shit going on? What? <laughs> um, I definitely recommend people do learn how to do that though because it's pretty fun. Yeah. Delicious. Okay, so I'm totally going to segue into some fun stuff because you want to yeah, learn about you a little bit. Okay, so you're in is you're in Half Moon Bay, right? I am. Yep. Okay, so what's going on there? Like, what is your what does your day to day look like? Is it sunny? Because it's really Jacob. Sorry, I didn't ask you if it's sunny there. It has been beautiful in Portland, and I'm looking out the window right now, and it's gorgeous. So I just kind of want to hear how is it there? How is let's it check in back Half in Bay? in November. <laughs> okay. Um, no, so California, where I am in California, there's a really strong upwelling. And actually, the coldest water on the entire West Coast is right here in Central California. Hmm. Even though it's 98 degrees inland, it's 50 and foggy here because the fog just eats up the coast. So, yeah, the summers in, in Half Moon Bay are cold and dark and foggy, which I like. It's kind of nice. Um, it keeps the fires away, <laughs> which sure. is a, an actual problem. Um, Seriously. So we really, we kind of like it, but it's not for everyone. And yeah, it's Hafen Bay. I mean, I live really close to the coastal mountains and two blocks from the beach. Um, I'm a 10 minute bike ride from the local harbor where I can buy whole fish. Hmm. So it's, it's a pretty good life. Get up early, walk the dog. Maybe get above the fog line, go for a run, and then sit down at my computer all day. I'm a little jealous. I was born just east of you in Redwood City. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah so you know Half Moon Bay. Yeah. <laughs> You've yeah. seen the fog just waiting. I've seen the... the fog. You can't see it. You, your hand is in front of your face. You cannot see your hand. Yeah, it's, it's... it's a beautiful area. It's actually weird to go back as an adult. Like as an, I should specifically say as a drinking adult. Because mm-hmm. honestly, going and enjoying like oysters and seafood along, it's, it's a different experience with like wine in hand or, yeah. or, or just being an adult and you can drive your car. I should probably yeah. say that most importantly, but yeah. Yeah. Or take public transit if you have that, yeah. which we don't have in Half Moon Bay. But no, we're I was just going to say, when did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> no, you still need a car to get anywhere and yeah. sit in traffic for hours. I know. But, well, but yeah, I'm, it's really nice. I, the, I enjoy being here. On the food level, what's your favorite tinned fish mm. and beverage pairing? Yeah, it clearly so does not need to be alcohol involved. But what's your what's your? Oh favorite? yeah, For, I mean, I I do enjoy some some homemade kombucha and and roasted coffee, but I love beer. And there are two kind of main kinds of tinned fish that I really like. Um, one was a really I don't remember the brand apologies but they're from portugal that i had when i was in annapolis that was a squid with squid ink oh wow and it was served with a bed of arugula and some really sharp biting balsamic on top of the arugula 
and then like a little slab of sourdough with some homemade butter. And that was amazing with an oyster stout. So kind of like the whiter, um, lighter tasting fish in a tin, definitely I go porter stout range. But then once it gets oilier, like really good sardines, or I've never actually been able to find good canned anchovies. I very much would love recommendations on that because I love anchovies. I've got some recommendations for you, Zach. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I'll send you some, don't worry. I feel like with that, like I definitely feel like you had Jose Gourmet or or Pena, but yeah. That was my thought as well, the squid inning. Oh my maybe that Jose Gourmet. It was really good. And it just really blew my mind. And the next time I went back there, I wanted the same thing. Because there's a, there's a really cool science institute that I've visited in, in Maryland a couple of times. Um, hmm. But they always have a different kind of a set of tin fish. And the next time was yellowfin tuna bellies, which was good. Hmm. But the squid just blew my mind. But with oilier fish, I go with hoppier beer. For whatever reason, it's just what my palate does. And my favorite thing is fresh hopped pale ales. Mm. And that is a product of having lived in the Pacific Northwest where they do pails the best. Boom, boom. Do you have some fun <laughs> breweries out there where you're at? Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're not super, super local, but um, Russian River is a pretty phenomenal brewery um, in the North Bay, in the Bay Area. That's definitely my favorite. And then there's another one in Santa Cruz that's kind of a young upstart that's been doing really well in like competitions called Sante Adarius. So if you're ever in Santa Cruz, definitely go to Sante Adarius. Awesome. Phenomenal. I love beer. that sleepy little town. Yeah, it ain't so sleepy. Time. It ain't it's so sleepy funny. anymore. It's, it's sleepy. That in Carmel, they're so sleepy, but every time you go, there's like new stuff happening. You're like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, it's, I'm sure it's changed since the last time you were there even. Um, it's been a hot minute. I mean, it's been COVID. And <laughs> oh, yeah. All the things. Yeah, I'm, so I'm there's no, definitely no. good breweries, but I am still partial to... Um, like in Oregon, DeGard is, I think, the best brewery there is, period. And then I love Holy Mountain in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And then all of like the hop specialty breweries. I mean, those are fantastic. Do you like sour beers? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Do you I've know Crooked Stave? I don't. Uh, I know Cascade more so, but Stave I've heard of Crooked Stave. One of my besties, but. Okay. That's good to know. Actually, that's my first trip during this entire situation. I'm going in about a week. I'm very excited. Oh, fun. Just going to get blown out on beer. <laughs> just, well, and also, just on, on, on what my I do for a living, or, um, one of my vendors found out I was coming out there, and they're like, fuck, we're all vexed. We're going to have a brunch. We're going to do it up. It's going to be good. But yeah. It's, it... <laughs> oh, man. I look forward it's, it's, to all it's that. It's so weird. It's so great. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'll have to come through Portland next time I drive up there. Uh, please look me up. And also, if you go through the the Texas neck of the woods for, for totally. GM. Little yeah. bit in Texas. Yeah. There's a, a, a surf park, actually, in Texas that I've been thinking about checking out. Where? Oh, nice. Yeah, there's like a big wave Sorry, I didn't pool. mean it like that. Like, where? But like, yeah. not judgmental. Where? Yeah, a bunch of professional <laughs> surfers go there. It's... um. I think it's it's like sixty minutes outside of Austin. Okay. What? Um, yeah. Fuck, that's awesome. It's trippy. Yeah, they basically just converted an old water park into like this like mega rad surf park. 
I thought you were going to have to drive three hours from wherever you were at that you were going to yeah. stay and you were like, no, it's like 40 minutes from Austin. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that far away. Um, it's supposed to be pretty fun, but. That's cool. Oh, uh, uh, so what do you do in your spare time? Yeah. <laughs> that was my next note. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, my initial um, love affair with tin fish actually came from the time I would spend surfing on the outer coast of Washington and also in Oregon where I needed like something really nutritious and filling and sardines were something that a PhD student could afford. So that was like my jam. And that's what I lived off of basically throughout my entire PhD. So like Oswald Park, Oregon or like more? Oh south? yeah. Oh really? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was my gem. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that whole area in Manzanita, I, I mean, we might've met then possibly. Probably. <laughs> Keep yeah. Going. I mean, I, I slept on the side of the beach in Manzanita many weekends because oh. um, they actually allow people to sleep there. I don't know if they still do, but yeah, they do. No, they do. They do. Um, low key though. Nobody needs to know that. You nope. can't sleep there. But yeah, it was, it was a really like kind of cool way to, come to the realization that tinfish are awesome um so yeah i spend a lot of time on the ocean i also race paddle boards which takes up a ton of time so i do like kind of like ultra marathon distance paddle boarding so this is a dumb question is this standing is this standing paddle boarding or like no it's the torturous one where you're basically oh oh god yeah you're 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 prone or on your knees yeah so it's it's a lot of a lot of exercise, but it's really fun. And the community is great. It's not toxic like surfing. It's really supportive. Everybody's super cool. And I met such amazing people um, from paddleboarding and the community is just phenomenal. It's like a global community and it's, That's it's awesome. really great. Yeah. Like, do we need to do another podcast on toxic surfboarding? Just joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Things people eat in their cars in coastal Oregon. <laughs> I mean, I mean, as any college student or any high school student, we all would be whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, if 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 there's something from the ocean that you think should be in a tin, mm. whether it's seafood. Whether it's a vegetable, like these these folks at Wildfish Cannery are doing these um, crazy things with like kelp and stuff. But if there's something mm. that you think should be in a tin, have you ever thought, or like maybe multiple things, like why the fuck isn't this isn't in a tin? Like why yeah. is this not in a tin? Why is someone not doing this outside of sustainability, deliciousness, like whatever it is? Or you're like, no, I'm I'm done with this. Conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think like. I mean, I haven't seen any like kelp in a tin or anything like that yet. So I'd be very curious to try that. I eat kelp all the time in the inner tidal. <laughs> I'm that crazy person that does it. I mean, it'd be really cool to kind of be able to introduce it to the inland masses that way. Um, I also really like don't understand why more people don't have tin mussels. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of options for sardines and mackerel and things like that of varying levels of quality, obviously. But for mussels at least in California, it's basically Patagonia Provisions is the only one that I consistently okay. see anywhere. And it's really good. I really like what they do. Um, but I only see them. And I just, I'm surprised on that because it's really easy to eat. It doesn't have that weird of a texture. You can just dump it on a bunch of rice and that's like a super you know, nutrient-packed dinner. It's very environmentally friendly. You can pack a bunch of them into a tin. That one surprises me. 
And I kind of, it's not that I haven't seen it, but I really want to see more okay. of it. Have you spent time on Prince Edward Island by chance? I haven't. And, I, and this is not in any way, sorry, Jacob, to like toot my own horn, but our newest import is um, Mary Minette. They're a female-owned fishery and oh, cannery cool. from Prince Edward Island, and we just brought in their um, smoked herring and mussels. They're oh. fucking ridiculous and delicious. Yeah. But I was also thinking the same thing. Why aren't more people doing this? Tuna is there, right? We have a great tuna mm-hmm. purveyor. Like, there's you know a lot of tuna, but it's... Um, I don't know. I think I think tin fish is the way to go for a lot of different. Yeah, and if you're, I mean, if you're talking like um, finding ways to feed people in tropical regions where maybe refrigeration doesn't exist, I mean, that's another benefit of tin fish. Like when I travel all over Micronesia or Fiji or whatever, I mean, if I'm not eating fresh local fish, which is typically in abundance, I'm eating tin fish because. Yeah. I can put a bunch in my backpack and when I'm like on like a 14 hour flight or some insane thing like that to the, you know, uh, angst of my passengers, I crack open a, a, you know, can of sardines or whatever and eat it. Totally. And it's just so shelf stable that it's just shocking that it isn't, you know, considered more seriously when we're thinking about you know, helping to feed people in need because yeah. yeah. you can just put it on your shelf and you can forget about it. I'm sure there's tons of people who just like panic bought a ton of tin fish during COVID and it's still good, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah and the, and you think about like, not just shelf stable, but like I was just driving to hood river um, mm. yesterday and spent the night and it was like weirdly warm. It was like 82 degrees. And I was like, Oh no, I have stuff in the car, but like, it's, it's a tinned fish. <laughs> if it gets heated up or not, the lack of oxygen inside of the can makes it. That's the whole issue. It's like a canned, tinned issue, like all together. Is it's way more sustainable because it's not like you have raw chicken meat in your car, mm-hmm. or you sure. got fresh, even, even fresh veggies. You know how they wilt in a grocery. Oh yeah, bit. yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, so yeah, that would be kind of. I think that would be the the dream and as far as like just creative different species you know i mean california mussels i actually prefer to bay mussels yet i've never seen one in a can Hmm. um they're way more or mytilus what is it california anus or something like that but the that it's a it's a much darker orange like a almost like a sockeye colored and is there a green line through it um I'm not Sorry, sure. I'm just trying to differentiate between the mussels that I've had, like, not not in a bad way, but like, a, I'm just. Trying I don't to differentiate think that. so, but I'm. I could be wrong. Um, but I used to just. I used to live close to Big Sur, which was a really hard life, and I would just go down the coast and, during season at least, harvest the mussels, and they're just like carrot orange, they're just spectacularly mm. orange, and they have a really rich, much more briny flavor. I found kind of, than kind of a salmon salmon t- taste to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're phenomenal. And that, I mean, that would be something where I'm shocked people don't do more of, to be honest. I'm a fan of like, especially when they're um, preserved in oil, like we're, we're working on an aged program Hmm. because that's what they do in Spain and Portugal and like everywhere else where they know that this is an important, very sustainable, but delicious thing is you can age wine, you can age whatever else you can age seafood. Whoa. When it has fat content, and I'm super excited. I mean, don't don't quote me. But 
we're, we're working on it. <laughs> yeah. No, that sounds super cool. I yeah. never, I don't think I ever had that when I was over there. Interesting. I'm going to have to look that up. Well, I'll, I'll have to send you a little care package. <laughs> <laughs> it will be consumed happily. <laughs> <laughs> be like, Abby, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, Zach, that was the best friend. Thank you for joining us and talking about all sorts of goodies, your, your response to Seaspiracy, your work um, at Stanford and with the Blue Food Assessment, all sorts of really exciting work. Um, let, let's get some goodies in the show notes. I'm sure listeners are um, really intrigued by a lot of the stuff that you mentioned. If people want to connect with you, learn more about the Blue Food Assessment, maybe other thought leaders in this game that they could connect with, mm-hmm. um, what would you recommend that we can link people to? Yeah, so the um, Blue Food Assessment can be found at bluefood.earth. And that's kind of probably the easiest way to connect with anyone. We'll have very soon, we'll have an email up and running for that. Um, I'm on Twitter um, at J-Z-K-O-E-H-N, which is my last name. And um, there's a, a whole bunch of amazing thought leaders. I already gave a shout out to the recent laureate Shakuntala Tilstead who works primarily in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Another good friend who's a mentor is a guy named Eddie Allison, and he works on more human rights and and things like that. Um, From a nutrition perspective, um, Chris Golden at Harvard and Christina Hicks at um, Lancaster University and Jessica Gephardt at American, um, they together kind of do different aspects of nutrition. So Chris Golden is an epidemiologist, so he works on nutrition and the food system. Christina is more focused on justice and environmental, um, the environmental justice implications of blue foods. And then Jessica um, is like a math whiz who works a lot with trade and tracking Mm -hmm. seafood supply through the food system globally. She's an absolute whiz. So between them, I mean, those are definitely some of the thought leaders that I work closely with and that I am very honored to like be, you know, mentored by. So it's, it's pretty, it's been pretty awesome for sure. Zach, thanks so much for so many people. Like that's so much in terms of who people can learn from and that's amazing. I yeah. I mean, they're all really scientists to be fair, but. <laughs> no, I mean, it, 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 that's so wonderful. Like often you hear people and they're like, it's fucking me. That's, <laughs> I think it's great, Zach. Yeah. Uh, well, great. I mean, nobody publishes papers by themselves anymore. So sure. That's in science. What? Yeah. Just yeah. It's great. It's a, it's a global world. You got to be a uh, collaborative. <laughs> well, Zach, thank you, friend. That was all a joy. Right. Thank we'll you so much. Soon. Hope to visit you guys in Texas and Oregon sometime. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Zach. Bye.